Hello and welcome to this episode of the Janes podcast. I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Janes Intelligence Unit and I'm joined on this episode by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of the Mad Scientist Initiative at the US Army. And this is all part of a recent sort of series of episodes we've been doing where we're kind of talking about thinking about the future. So uh, that's a key part of what Luke's involved in and um, we'll hopefully have a chance in this episode to talk about different ways of thinking about the future. So Luke, thanks and, and w- welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on, Terry. I appreciate it. Maybe you could start off by describing the Mad Scientist Initiative for anyone who doesn't know and give them an understanding of what it is and what it does. Yeah, so the Army Mad Scientist Initiative was really something that started in the mid-2000s. And we were currently really embroiled in um, Iraq and Afghanistan, and we were dealing with problems from uh, IEDs and all these different kind of asymmetric tactics. And uh, what we were trying to do was help the Army figure out how to think differently and how to bring in differing opinions. And so that was a program that initially started very government heavy. And so uh, we had you know, some great scientists and engineers from NASA Langley Research Center, from the intelligence community, from the FBI, come together and, and try and think about what is the next set of problems that we're gonna deal with. And then in the mid to around 2015 actually, um, we saw this kind of resurgence, right? So uh, Russia was involved in Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, uh, and we saw what was happening in Syria and, you know, realizing this return of great power competition and uh, disruptive technologies. And what is that going to do and shape our mission set? And so in that vein, Tom Greco had this idea to bring back mad scientists, but rather than limit it to the government, why don't we take in outside opinions of these outside inputs There's so much expertise that we want to bring in and get those insights so we can think about the future of not only warfare, but the whole operational environment. Because we live in you know, a society, a world that is shaped by these technologies and trends, so we're not just operating in some military vacuum. We have to operate in that. So how do we do that? And that's by bringing in some of those experts. And so one of the things he, he's pointed to in the past that we like to use as a model is you go back and you look at the 9-11 Commission report, and it talks about a failure of policy and a failure of execution and a failure of communication. And one of the things they talk about was a failure of imagination. And that is what we're trying to defeat. We don't want to get bogged down into the way we've always done things and miss the forest for the trees. So that's when we start to bring in all these different expertise, and we call it really harnessing the intellect of the nation. So what we really do is try to envision the future operational environment, and we do that across academia, across tech, and other government agencies. So it's really a whole-of-nation approach to figure out what does that future operational environment look like. I think too many organizations find it hard to sort of step away or look beyond the immediate priorities to think about, okay, what else could be out there? How is the operating environment changing in the future for us to adapt to or think about adapting to? Especially when you're trying to think about the future and you're trying to think about the alternatives and things that could happen, it's difficult, I guess, to give people solid answers and say, well, you definitely, we definitely need to do this or we definitely need to change to adapt to this type of operating environment because this is what we're going to be seeing in five years. You know, there isn't that level of certainty. So how much of a challenge has that been in terms of getting that buy-in, not just from senior leadership, but also from others perhaps across the army? I think that's an excellent point. And it's, it's something we 
I would say struggle with, but I think we enjoy the challenge because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a great, I always say, you know, not to be sacrilegious, but uh, we prodal size and we're trying to, we're trying to convert people into believers in terms of thinking differently about the future. And I think the, the ways in which you do that are important because again, you can't just throw it in their face and you can't just say, these are the facts. So believe it. Um, and, and again, you say it's, it's not certain there's, there's divergent, um, possibilities out there. Actually a product that I worked on over the summer, um, with army futures command was looking at, um, 2035 and beyond. And what we thinking yeah. about in the deep future. And what we did was look at four alternative worlds. And those were actually just four of many, um, because we, we had to look at, okay, rate of technological change. What, how's the world change if it's high rate of change versus low? Uh, or how do we look at it in terms of bipolar, in terms of a world where maybe we are, we are against another great power like China, um, not, not exactly similar to the previous Cold War versus a multipolar world where you're dealing with a lot of ascending power. And so we had to we had to think about that because I can't give you um, point pr- predictions. I can't say that in in 2032 we'll have flying cars. Um, you know, we we can't make those marks on the wall per se. Um, Dr. Soren Long, uh, who who was uh, at one of the future war games I was at, said, you know, point predictions are a sucker's bet. And one of my favorites was um, I've heard. If you uh, if you try to make a lot of predictions with a crystal ball, you better get used to eating a lot of ground glass. So it's it's this idea that you can't just, can't just predict it. So again, your your question is apt. How do you how do you get people to buy in when you can't tell them for certain? Um, and I think the biggest thing that we have to get across is we always try to describe the future operation environment. I'm not I'm not trying to predict it. I want to describe it so that there are certain characteristics features and trends within that that I can't tell you exactly when it's going to happen, but I can tell you what those trends and technologies are going to do to shape the overall future operational environment. And one of the things that we did with that work at looking at four alternative worlds is identify what are those underpinning cross-cutting trends and technologies that impact the future? What What is always there? What is persistently in there in the future that we look at and then we have to turn that around and say what capability sets and what formations do we need to be able to operate and win in that space. And so we have had pushback, you know. So I started um, before I was even in Mad Scientist. I was working as a futures analyst for the Army, and uh, I used to I used to work at um, Unified Quest, which was the chief of staff of the Army's future war game. It's actually a future studies program now. Um, but General Milley was was basically running that uh, before he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs when he was still the uh, um, chief of staff for the Army. And General Milley, I think, helped us with not getting as much pushback because he had the authority to come in and say, this, this is what we're going to think about. Um, and I think having an open-minded CSA like that really helped us because he came in and said, I don't even know in 2035 if we're going to have a battalion. Or if we're going to have a brigade, you know, we we can't just take today's organization charts and throw it, um, you know, 20 years into the future. We can't do it. Um, so he was very open to thinking about what does that look like differently. 
Um, in terms of leadership, I think generally speaking, we've been very fortunate to have a lot of leaders who are listening and want to think differently and understand the kind of challenges and opportunities that we face in the future. But I think you brought up a great point where you said not even just the leaders, but what about the rest of the force? And I think when you deal with field grade officers and you deal with um, these various colonels and, and people who are in positions of power. So we often think about the four stars and the three stars that we brief and how, how important they are, right? And we get all this buy-in and they can go out and give marching orders. But at the bottom line, we have to convince the real power brokers. Um, and that's not, that's not to discount three and four stars, but these are the power brokers who are dealing with day-to-day operations with their forces. And they are, they are the ones who are shaping them. And so how do we convince them to think about it? And um, we've, had, we've always had some pushback. I've, I've been at these events, and if I had a dollar for every time somebody said, that'll never happen, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't be on this podcast because I'd be on my mega yacht right now. But mm-hmm. the, the, the point being that um, you get these folks in these positions, and I don't think we can blame them for, for the way they're thinking about it. They have, they have very real things think about every day. I'm fortunate, right? I, I, get to, I get paid to think about the future, to bring in all these experts, um, but I'm fortunate to do that. I don't have um, necessarily soldiers' lives in my hands every day. I don't have billions of dollars worth of equipment that I'm trying to maintain um, and very real operational demands every day. So I can't really blame them for not being ready to jump 20 years into the future. But what we can do is convince them and bring them in again with that buy-in. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes current events kind of prove us right sometimes. And we start to get those believers because we see things. So one of the things that we talked about um, was this idea of drone swarms uh, and the future of unmanned and autonomous systems and what kind of impact that's going to have. One of the things we've always brought up is this idea that not limited to state actors this isn't something where it's it's just russia it's just china or even even you know mid-tier countries when it comes to economics we're talking about non-state actors being able to do these things um because the the cost of entry is so low um in, in terms of technology too um it's not quite plug and play yet but it's getting there and so then when you see you know almost two years ago now when you see the Houthis attacking a Saudi oil field um, with with a drone attack and the kind of damage that was inflicted from that, that's that's proving the point. We're seeing pretty quickly the kind of implications from those trends, and it's really only going to be exacerbated in the future. And so that that was, you know, a lot of people were like, "Oh, a drone swarm attack." Well, it wasn't actually a drone swarm; attack. it was a saturation attack where they they essentially sent a number of drones in that area. Um, but that even proved our point further in terms of you have to look at the damage that this did. Um, and this was a fairly rudimentary attack. Actually. So what, what do we see out of that in the future? So when they see those things, then there's implications for operational units. That means this is not some far distant thing out in the future, even though we have to start thinking that far in the future. This is something their operational units are going to have to deal with in a very short period of time. And so we want to prepare them for that, so that they can start thinking differently. You know, I was um, 
previous to being a futures analyst, I was working um, with tactical army units, generally at, at about brigade and above exercises. And what we did was replication of the operational environment. So what is this going to look like if a lot of times you said you went to Afghanistan and you're going to Kandahar or wherever, um, and we would pump in six, wor six months worth of intel messages in two weeks um, just to give them a taste of, of, of what this was like. Um, and then we did a couple exercises, not in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, but looking at maybe operating in another nation state where we don't have air superiority, where we don't have um, these fobs and, and places, you know, a lot more secure places um, and operating kind of alone and unafraid. And so to, to get that into their heads um, was very difficult to tell commanders who are used to owning the sky, you are going to have UAVs over your head. Um, and this idea that, you know, even if it's not armed, get used to someone being able to tell your location based on aerial surveillance. And so, you know, those are very real challenges that we have to bring to the forefront. And I think one of the tools that we use a lot to get buy-in or at least to change paradigms is, you know, when you had August on, um, using pieces of sci-fi. I can take a cut of Ghost Fleet or a similar novel um, where, where they're dealing with these future technologies as a threat and show them that, and that will have way more impact than any white paper that I can throw at them. So that's, rather that's, than that. Well, I say that's really interesting because obviously that's what we, we talked to Peter about. And it's amazing that, they, yeah, the, that element of trying to get the impact, trying to get that it was part of the getting the buy-in but like you said also um trying to get people to shift their mindset because as you mentioned before you've had 20 years of a similar type of warfare a similar type of operating environment uh, so i guess now you're at the point where you've got a generation of leaders at all levels who have only had that type of experience to some extent and or you know maybe haven't had a lot of other types of experience and so yeah it's interesting what you're saying there in terms of trying to change their mindsets because that that pre presumably is a big challenge in in getting people to think differently at the, all those different levels yeah absolutely and it's um so so when we say 2035 can we mm. really can we really predict 2035 i would almost assuredly say absolutely not because you know, and I know that sounds antithetical to, to the things I'm working on, but if you look at the phone that I have right in my hand, um, this was something unimaginable. I, I wouldn't say unimaginable, but to the level that it's been integrated, uh, this was not something we would have imagined 20 years ago. Um, we had this divergence of technologies, and so we had Palm Pilots, and mm. we had, you know, of course, fax machines and scanners and all these things. Um, but it would take a lot for people to really think about, even if you look at like Star Trek uh, tricorders or whatever they were using, you know, it, it would take people a lot to think about this, you know, I won't say perfect, but close to perfect convergence of technology, of battery power, screen technology, um, uh, processing, graphics, everything that came together to make these smartphones. And so, yeah. you know, to imagine that, 20 years out, I think, um, in a way, is kind of foolhardy to think that you're going to predict exactly what that's like. But we isn't, have isn't to start that, thinking about it. 
Yeah, I was going to say, isn't that part of the challenge when you're working in a military environment? Because especially when so much planning is geared towards that kind of 20 years out sort of time frame and, and beyond, you know, I mean, the work that we do in the Jane's Intelligence Unit, we work closely with a lot of national security, government, military clients around the world. And we're constantly operating in that planning for the 20 years or, or 40 years out even, because if you want to if you want to have your force ready for that time frame, you're going to be procuring equipment and platforms right. and vehicles, et cetera, and, or, or at least designing, definitely starting to design them now because it's going to take that long to get them uh, operational. So you have to kind of think in that time frame, right? And and I guess that, like you said, it's, it's so hard to plan for. Um, Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, there's, there's two factors to that. So the first mm-hmm. is I say 2035. Well, for, for two reasons, I say 2035. Mm-hmm. Um, the Army has looked at the MDO, our multi-domain operations um, capable force in, in the 2028 time frame mm-hmm. of having um, the ability to execute multi-domain operations in a number of mixed formations. And then when you look out to 2035, that's supposed to be your MDO ready force. So we should be you know, fairly fully fielded at that point of being able to execute on multi-domain operations. But I tell people 2035, because if I tell a commander right now, 2028 or 2025, um, they're just going to think very iteratively from right now to to the next step. And it's going to be only slightly evolutionary thinking. I need revolutionary thinking, which is exactly what you were talking about. We have to think about these things now because the all the all the. Um, uh, materiel is being built right now and designed. We also have to think about how is it all going to collaborate and work together. Um, this isn't this isn't something where we can create fighting vehicle in a vacuum and then we can create a future vertical lift in a vacuum. Um, the whole point of multi-domain operations and and working with um, the Army and and Navy and Marine Corps on JADC2 or the Joint All Domain. Uh, command and control, working all those pieces together is that they do work together. So it's, it has to be, um, Christian bros were a really good book called kill chain. Um, really kind of describes that well. And this idea that we can't think in terms of a line and block systems approach that we have goal four and before we have to think about this kill chain or kill web ideology, um, which can, can be a little scary to people. This, this sound, (laughs) The sound of it is scary, um, but yeah. really it's it's an integrated systems approach um, that is very holistic in nature. You have to think about all these things. And so we're dealing with not just um, difficulty uh, or complex. We're dealing with complexity, um, and that involves a lot of different parts. And so I think that's where we have to think ahead. Um, we have to start start building that now. And to your point, these things are being built right now. So, like, how do we how do we future proof? That's one of the things we talk about. Um, how do we future proof so that we can be Netflix and not Blockbuster? Uh, <laughs> and and so, how do we build in that ability to be anti fragile? And one of the things is is a base level of research. So, through all this work, I've also done some work with the Army Research Lab, um, thinking about tech forecasts. And so, you know, part of that is a little bit of backwards planning. So we look at 
these are the technologies that we think are going to be most prominent in the future operational environment. And then we had to look at if we're operating through this multi-domain operations spectrum, then what are the most critical technologies? What do we absolutely, no kidding, have to have? And then backwards planning that to ARL, who does a lot of basic research, to what is the basic research that we have to do right now in order to get to that? Because everything that we're doing right now in terms of research is going to build that future. So um, for the U.S. Army, a lot of people talk about the big six. Um, when you talk about the Apache uh, and the Abrams and all the all the different technologies that were helpful uh, or really vital for us when we talk about air land battle and you got to see in the 91 gulf war the culmination of all that so you go from the starry study of looking at the israeli air war um and and what were the contributing successful factors to that to building all those programs and then a, a, a method of war fighting that got us to you know this this great success um and so we we wanted to backwards plan that to see what are we going to build now because those platforms didn't come out of nowhere it wasn't it wasn't they were magically born um it was it was general abrams took a look at all of this and said what do we need out of this uh with general don starry what are we going to have to have and it happened over decades not not a couple of years it happened over decades so the research that we do now the concepts that we're building those are going to be culminating um only i think it's going to happen a lot faster um the future is coming at us very fast the rate of change for technology um, and for how those things are implemented uh, is very different from that model which was still a very post-world war ii industrial model um we look at the fight that we had for oif and oef it's a very information age kind of fight and we came into our own when it came to using, excuse me, precision guided munitions um, and this reliance, this new reliance on space-based systems and having assured communications. Um, but now we are going into not an information age, but an intelligent age. And so how are we going to operate with all these intelligent systems on the battlefield? So I think that we, we have to have a whole different approach. And um, again, it's, it's about convincing um, all levels, all levels of soldiers and leadership about what we need to do. And I think we're getting there. All the things you've described there, there's so many things I could pick up on, but a couple of things in particular that I wanted to ask about was um, to what extent you focused mostly on the capabilities of, of the army itself versus um, the extent to which you're looking at how adversaries and their capabilities might develop. Um, because obviously they when you talk about multi-domain operations you're going to have to cater for a wider variety of adversary capability than perhaps has been the case in the past but also i guess thinking about the fact that that distinction between state and non-state is becoming more and more blurred as we're seeing more kind of gray zone activity etc um you know what what's the balance there in terms of looking at your own capabilities versus the capabilities of others I think there's there's three factors really you have to think about. There's your own, so you have to have you know pretty good self awareness of your own capabilities, as you talked about. What, um, and and then sometimes that's owning up to um, what are the fragilities and what are the you know 
exploitable weaknesses in in some of our cases or or what do we have over reliances on um and and we know what those organizational sins are when it comes to that so it's it's that self-awareness and then you have to get to red the adversary of capabilities and understanding what what not only what are they building but how do they plan to employ it what are their yeah. intentions because threat as you know working for chains as you know threat <laughs> is capability plus intention so capability without intention um is is often misguided so we have to think about how would it be employed um and we have to work very hard not to do mere imaging to say this is how they would do it because this is how i would do it um we have to understand the mindset of those adversaries and it's something uh general mcmaster um previous national security advisor talks about uh of strategic empathy so this idea of not thinking through a u.s lens and starting to think about how are adversaries approaching this? So when I think about a, a nation state like Russia, mm-hmm. I can't think about how I would employ it as a U.S. and I have these gigantic borders of the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean uh, and friendly, generally friendly neighbors to the north and south. I can't think like that. I have to mm-hmm. think about um, NATO as this hostile being to me um, that's right on my doorstep and how am I going to defend against that? Um, so we have to we have to have that strategic empathy. And then I think the third factor is really, I guess I would call green or white space, um, where is the world around us? So we can't, again, look at it in a vacuum, a vacuum of their technologies versus our technologies. And, and that's useful. That's a useful exercise in net assessments to understand where your adversaries are and where you are in comparison. But you also have to think about that world around you. Um, non-state actors are, are certainly a piece of that. Um, you have to look at one of the things that we've thought about a lot is a democratization of technology. This idea that you know so much of so much of the disruptive technology out there is widely available to a lot of people for not a lot of cost. This this device, you know, again, I keep going back to the smartphones, but this device in our pockets are multi-spectral sensors. They're um, encrypted communicators. They are an ability to self-organize and disaggregate and do all these different things with this one device in our pocket that might be a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars. And so, you know, we're, we're talking about technology converged together that was really only available to nation states, you know, only a couple decades ago. And now we have um innumerable capabilities and that comes to like satellite imagery too you know when google earth first emerged it was kind of this novel thing like hey i can maybe i can see my house or i can see you know oh cool you can go look at the great wall of china or something like that um whereas now there's so much such a bevy of commercial imagery available that now it's affected our ability to camouflage to um hide to get strategic surprise um we are we are dealing in a world of persistent stare so we have to think about the world around us um even even when we've talked to like the modern war institute and they're thinking a lot about dense urban operations and operating in cities so the whole idea before that you could like just do siege operations against the city and not have to deal with it or you can go around those cities they think we're coming to a point where we realize that's not going to be possible and we're going to have to operate in and among um, those populations. And so if you look at throwing like a, an entire division 
will get swallowed up if you threw them into Jakarta. It's just a right. huge, huge area. Uh, and you can't hope to just operate the same way you would even in a Baghdad or, or somewhere like that. So you have to think about those things in sense of the overall society, because now we're not only dealing with like physical obstruction uh, in terms of traffic check uh, choke points or all these vertical structures of buildings and subterranean and, and all those things are very challenging already. But now we also have to think about the electronic congestion and noise that we're going to have to deal with in those cities, because again, I'm going to talk about smartphones about 10,000 times in this podcast. But when you go back to it and you have all these smart devices, not only your phones, um, but the, the Apple Watches, Fitbits, people wear um, more and more wearables that are going on, smart devices in your homes. All these things are emitters and sensors, and it's a lot of noise. And really, that is only going to increase. Um, that is only going to get, I, I wouldn't call it worse per se, uh, because for society, in some ways, it's going to be very helpful. Um, but for us, in operating in that, it's only going to get worse. Um, and wearables are going to become a thing um, that, is, that is really embedded with us, uh, that is part of us, um, that we're going to have in our everyday lives uh, as everything becomes smart. So to the, to the shirts that we're wearing one day, are probably going to have some sort of smart technology. And that means more and more noise. Um, and so how do I look for my adversaries in that space? How do I separate them from the civilian populace? Um, so, so how do we do that when now you're kind of looking for a needle in a stack of needles? Yeah. And that's, that's really, really um, a complex situation that we have to start thinking about in the future um, and then we start thinking about other things in society um, when it comes to human augmentation and things like that. How do we deal with augmented humans when we I mean, we have to recruit from our own population. That's we are, you know, General Milley said before, we are a, uh, a service that is um, of and for the nation. That means we're pulling from that population. So how do we deal with human augmentation in the service? Do you allow somebody to come in who's got enhanced eyesight? Um, if if someone is enhanced in the force, do we, you know, how do you, do they get to keep those capabilities when they go back um, to inevitably being a civilian? Um, there's all sorts of moral ethical dilemmas that we have to think about with that. So I know I just gave you a, a gigantic, <laughs> there has to be um, a lot of consideration and that's also why we have a piece every time we look at a certain area, whether it be robotics and autonomy, or we look at bioconvergence or any of those areas, we always include include an ethics piece um, to get an understanding of what that is, because we are not our adversaries. And while our adversaries do have ethics, so there's this idea that, you know, Russians and Chinese that we fight against are just these uh, immoral, you know, the Huns, this uh, World War One ideology, um, they have ethics. It's just very different from ours. Uh, and that's where we, you know, kind of start to consider that ethical asymmetry, we call it, and, and have to think about how does that align? Because all the stuff we just talked about, all the things we want to build and do um, and operate these, hopefully these kill chains and kill webs in the future, they still have to have the inherent values um, and ethics of our nation at heart. We can't we can't abandon all that for the sake of 
um, getting to the most disruptive solution. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, you covered so many things there, like you said, but because it, I guess it's important, right? When you're thinking about the future, all of these things do converge and they do come together and you've got to think about the impact of different factors on each other. Um, and you mentioned, you know, ethics there and we've already seen, I think, in China around some of the ethics of um, sort of, you know, DNA uh, intervention, et cetera. And, and there is definitely a strong uh, ethical consideration for them as well but like you said it could be different and it could be a very different perspective than we might have in the west so um yeah it's a, it's a really interesting you would take that into consideration and uh, i think vital as well you know for planning for how you're going to operate in the future and there was a couple of things you mentioned earlier where you talked about that sort of i guess the combination of forecasting so thinking about i guess probably the nearer term things but also then describing and creating those scenarios those alternative futures which is inherently a more creative exercise and goes beyond the scope of forecasting and what i really liked was how you talked about the time frame in terms of trying to get people beyond that mindset of iterating and the evolution aspect um you know are there any for, for anyone else who's thinking about trying to encourage or inculcate the same kind of futures thinking or perspectives in their organizations from the work you've done up to now what advice do you give to to anyone who's thinking about doing this um to try and do it effectively to try and bring together those different elements but also to, to do it over that sort of time frame that you've been talking about the kind of 20 years plus um versus trying to you know figure out okay well is there going to be something short term that is going to be massively disruptive that we need to anticipate yeah that's it's a tough challenge i'll tell people that it, <laughs> it is a tough challenge and i think the biggest advice i can give is to use empathy and that, that seems weird right so we talk about like a lot of intelligence and i've just talked about all these military applications and and for lack of a better term, killing people and, and doing all these, you know, lethality and all these these kind of tough things to talk about sometimes. Um, but empathy is important when you think about the future. So, and what I mean by that is thinking, getting your, your whether it's your subordinates, your customers, um, just whoever you have a relationship with and that you're trying to get this forecasting across, you have to get them, put themselves in, in those shoes, in those shoes of their future selves, um, to step out of the now and start thinking about those things differently. And in order to do that, you have to change your mindset from right now, which can be difficult. And that's why I also talked about, uh, I think science fiction and storytelling are just a, an enormous piece of that. Um, because I want them to think about what it feels like to be on that future battlefield, not not a bunch of numbers um, that I'm going to give you budget projections out to that time. Even even demograph demographics are probably one of the easiest things to predict because um, short of you know I should knock on wood, um, but short of some genetic miracle where we can just start creating um, babies that that much quicker and and um, change birth and death rates that much quicker, um, we are we are looking at fairly steady models. But everything else is very nascent um, and it can be hard to wrap your head around. But if I give them storytelling, I can put them into that situation and have them think about it in terms of what it feels like, and what it looks like. Um, and that's where you have to engage all those senses. That's where I need my Pete Singers and Martha Wells and, and these sci-fi authors to come in and help me 
um, to help those people visualize that. Um, because if I just, again, throw them a bunch of numbers um, or these projections, it really doesn't mean much. Um, and that's that goes back to the art of intelligence as well, um, is you should always be storytelling when it comes to giving these projections. And I think what you talked about with forecasting, we had um, Dr. Amy Zalman um, on our podcast before, and she's done some incredible work. Um, and, and that's what she gets back to as well, is putting yourself into those shoes, you know, and she's talked about um, what it was like to have uh, grandparents who were immigrants and coming in um, and the experiences that they had coming in and how impactful that storytelling was for her. And so how do you do that when you start talking about the future? Um, and sometimes I like to uh, invoke people's relatives. And so that sounds weird, but I like to talk about my own kids. So I have um, a six and a nine-year-old, six and nine-year-old boys. Um, and I, I want to tell people, if you have kids, if you have even nephews or nieces, if you have kids, think about that future army. What do you want them to be able to operate with and in? How are they going to think about it? Because they're very different. And that's one of the things that we talked about um, when we, we were discussing AI um, and this idea of like, whenever I dealt with senior leaders, um, one of the biggest things I get a lot of times is uh, commanders are not going to be comfortable handing over decision making or um, operating with these AI systems. They want to trust a person to a person. Um, and there's there's just a relationship there that you can't replicate and everything else. And that's fine. And I, I do understand that intrinsic human value to an extent. But my kids will operate with Alexa right now. They don't care. Um, this is something that they are used to. So the next generation of warfighters, leaders, and this applies to business too. Um, the, you know, to all, all these enterprises of business, the next generation, the generation beyond, they're not going to have trepidation when it comes to dealing with it. They have a whole other host of concerns from privacy and, and influence and things like that. Um, but they're not going to have trepidation when it comes to working with intelligent systems. We have to stop thinking about us uh, and our own experiences and step out a lot of times and think about the next generations that are coming. Um, and that can help change mindsets as well when you're thinking about that forecasting. And then we got a, a great big ugly example with COVID-19 to help us show people how you have to think about the future. Um, and, and it was a great example too of, it's not like no one was talking about this. It, it's not like it didn't exist in anyone's mind and it was just completely unforeseen. Um, it was a matter of focus and a matter of attention. And so, you know, we wrote, we had a conference in 2018 on bioconvergence uh, with uh, SRI International out in Silicon Valley. And one of the things that we wrote in our report was the idea of pandemics and what was coming next um, and how are we gonna deal with it? Now, our, our, our viewpoint was very much of what if this was created by an adversary um, and it was targeted against, you know, not being able to use uh, antibiotics and antivirals. And there was there were certain things we were looking at in more of a future sense. But regardless, it was something that was being considered. And you saw some of the um, uh, um, theoretical scenarios that were being played out 
um, whether it be World Health Organization or U.S. organizations or across international cooperation, there was things that were taking place. Um, but we didn't want to give it its due credit because it's boring until, <laughs> until you it's 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 a boring dystopia. It's a boring problem because we don't get to shoot things at it and we don't get to um, we don't get to, to race to the moon for it. Um, it is something that's very difficult. I mean, you look at people right now don't want to have to sit at home or wear masks when they go out. Um, but if you told them to like rally against xenomorphs that came down from space, they'd be all about it. So, so, you know, it, it's a problem. And so we have to start thinking about then what's the next boring problem. Um, so we see supply chain fragility that, that's come about. Um, we see issues in communications, cyber defense. These are things a lot of times that are not very exciting, um, but they're critical for our everyday lives. So how do we get people to think about that? Um, and, and we have to, again, use use that big, ugly example to say, you know, this is not something people wanted to talk about. This is certainly not something you would have seen at a lot of war games and things like that. Um, but it impacted us in a way most people would not have imagined. That's a great example. I think, you know, what, and what you mentioned there about some of those other potential issues that could be on the horizon, on the near horizon, which are, as you say, boring to talk about, but could be really important. I mean, it is a lot of that down to the fact that we can't really see them. Right. It's like you said, it's not it's not a visible enemy. It's not somebody you can shoot at. It's um, it's something that, yeah, as with the pandemic, we, we we feel the impact, but we don't necessarily see it. Uh, yeah. in such a yeah in such a way that's um that's that's tangible for us and i guess but it, within that so obviously you're doing a lot of great thinking within the army and, and getting trying to get that as you said that buy-in and, and get that futures oriented planning going and and some of those exercises you mentioned like that 2018 exercise um in terms of the product of that and 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 for the army as a as a really influential i guess actor uh in general across the the sort of political military spectrum etc is the army able to influence sort of broader planning around that in terms of saying you know if you if you if you if you in within the futures um uh, command or you know the army more generally if you're flagging up a risk and saying you know what we think this is going to be way more important than people are maybe giving it credit or maybe aren't paying enough attention to this kind of thing that we see as a as a, a boring but potentially a really important risk that we should pay more attention right. to you know, is there is there a way for the U.S. Army to perhaps to use its um, broader influence to maybe message that to a bigger audience, to you know, outside of the the, the military, to get that buy-in from across the public, across government, maybe as well, to start that sort of bigger planning, I guess, because even for the army, you can't work in isolation to sort of deal right. with a lot of these issues that might be coming down the pipeline. Yeah, I think. Um... I, I would answer that as yes and no. Right. So I, I think we do have a voice. And I mm -hmm. think um, we have to, in a way, be very careful with that voice because um, the military is still one of the most trusted entities in the United States, um, above a lot of other institutions. Um, but we have to be responsible and careful with that voice. Um, and, and obviously we have to be apolitical and, and everything else, but, um, there's a limit to that voice as well. Uh, and, and we, we are with confined in a way within our lane 
even though everything else is, you know, it's kind of like we're on the highway and we're stuck in our lane. Everybody's <laughs> chucking stuff into our, in our lane. Um, but we, we can't necessarily reach out necessarily to influence the nation in that way. But what we can do is use our voice. So, you know, you've, you've listened to the convergence and, mm. um, there's various other great podcasts out there from the army, um, CCDC or sorry, the, it's called uh, develop DevCom now. Um, but combat capabilities development command, uh, modern war Institute. There's, there's a lot of institutions that have great podcasts to reach out. Um, and there's a lot of work being done by the whole army team to communicate these, these ideas out to people because we want to permeate it out to the entirety of the society. However, I think, um, and I hate to use this example, given what we're going through right now. Um, but I think virality is is the way in which we we do that um and what i mean by that is you know re- reaching out to folks like yourself you know we've we've reached you because of the podcast and the things that we've put out we've had folks from uk and australia and spain come to us and say you know we're listening to this um it's really interesting um i want to connect to people in the society whether it's in industry and tech, whether it's in other government, whether it's across other nations, I want to communicate to them and make them actual believers in some of these ideas and some of these concepts in terms of what, you know, one of the questions we ask a lot on the convergence is, what are we missing? What are we not thinking about? And that question serves two purposes. One, it tells our senior leaders what people outside the army think. Uh, and not only think, but think about what we think. So, you know, they say, hey, your, your priority is not enough on biodefense or something like this. Um, so that, that's the first factor of it. But the second factor is they become self-aware of that and they start spreading the message more and more. Um, the DOD wants to be a part of this, but we have to get them there as well. We have to bring those ideas in. And that's where the virality takes place to so start to spread those ideas. You mentioned, obviously, that the podcast, and I'm a big fan of the podcast. Uh, I think you guys have done a great job with the convergence. You've had some amazing guests. And you mentioned the episode with Amy Zellman. And I listened to that. That was really good. Really enjoyed that one. Um, and we've had some overlap, I think, in some of our guests, too, which is probably uh, not coincidental because, you know, obviously we're interested in similar themes and similar things that are going on. But um, I wanted to maybe ask you, you know, from all of that interaction you've had with other people, whether it's through the podcast or other through other means, you know, from um, some of the people you brought in to speak to uh, from outside the military and other fields. What are the kind of big things you've learned in terms of not necessarily specific to any topics, but maybe around things that you've picked up from those experts in how to think about the future? I would go back to the four methods that we like to use when we think about the future. The first thing that we like to do a lot is crowdsourcing. So you've seen this idea of bringing in a lot of differing ideas and then you you get um, we can do it in a number of ways. We can do it very formal, um, where we've done you know writing contests and sci-fi contests and things like that, and and those are great because we've had you know our sci-fi contests, which um, August uh, August Cole was actually a uh, senior judge for. You know we had over 130 contestants or, or writers from 38 different countries, and so to get to get this wide swath of people to come in, uh, we were able to then take out of what they produced, uh, what they gave us, 
what are these ideas about the future? And, and sometimes it can be really indicative when you pull out some of those ideas and you see them come to fruition. You know, things that we saw being written about four or five years ago coming, coming to be now. And then you can do very informal crowdsourcing. Uh, we had people do a Twitter contest. Tell us about the future of war in, you know, whatever it is, 230 characters or less. Um, and so you can get these differing ideas from all over the place. Um, and people get concerned about that. You, you talk to large organizations like the army and it's like, well, you're just going to take advice from, from random people, you know, <laughs> all over the place. And, and the idea is yes, you know, and you're going to get some craziness that comes in with that, but you have to take it all in together and you have to, um, be willing to hear it. It doesn't mean you make all your decisions based on, um, uh, on the, the wisdom of the crowd, um, but crowdsourcing takes a big place. And I think when you're, when you're a large organization, um, especially one that's been grounded in a lot of history, you have to bring in outside people. You have to start thinking about those things differently with those people because you can't just hire outside consultants and you can't just get institutionalized knowledge brought in. That's very important. Institutional knowledge is critical to understanding your, your organization's history and, and how, how, it, how its values are expressed and things like that. But you have to get those outside opinions as well. And then we, we like to use um, storytelling. I kind of beat that one to death already, but uh, can't, can't emphasize it enough. Um, another thing that we like to think about is edge cases. So whatever, whatever your field is, start looking at not what is being widely adopted, but what is at the furthest edge of the possible. And a lot of times when we work with, you know, larger tech firms, IBM, NVIDIA, um, they have some, some really cutting edge technologies and some really intriguing ideas. But they, you have to understand that they are very focused on uh, their profitability um, and, and making sure their boards and their shareholders uh, are, are happy, right? Um, but sometimes the bleeding edge of that technology comes from those small startups with two girls and a guy in a basement that are, that are coming up with these, these revolutionary technologies uh, and these ideas. And... And so we want to look at the edge cases of what's happening. And sometimes it's not even the technologies. I think I probably focus, you know, too much even in this podcast on talking about material, but sometimes it's how all that stuff comes together. It's not that it's not that the technologies for a lot of these things didn't exist. It's the convergence, if I can name drop the podcast. So it's, <laughs> it's the convergence of those technologies. And those societal trends, economic and political, those things coming together is where you see the changes across our timeline. It's not just that something was invented. Things are things are invented every day, and we see the advent of these technologies. But what does it mean when they all come together? And those edge cases are really important. Um, and that gives us visions into the future of what might be. What are the weak signals? Um, we saw several years ago. You know, this idea of behavior modification, this idea that we were looking at biological enhancement and, and what was that going to be? The time frame we were thinking initially was more out into the 2030s. And then in China, you saw the, the researcher that came out with the CRISPR twin babies. 
And we saw, you know, that was something we saw maybe taking place over another generation, not happening right in front of our faces. And so even though that was a novel kind of one-off, if you will, that was something that gave us an indicator that biotechnology and human enhancement is maybe coming at us faster than we might anticipate. Um, and then another thing to think about is historical analogies. So one-for-one -one analogies actually don't work that well. So if you think about things like um, the the pandemic that was dealt with in the Spanish flu pandemic uh, or the great influenza. So this idea that our comparison of situations from then to now is not the same at all. Um, there, there are some similarities there in terms of when we deal with things like disinformation and how it's handled by governments and, you know, what what is the response in terms of vaccines and things of that nature. There, there are some similarities. But what you have to use historical analogies for is to change the way you think about things and the questions you're asking. So the, the example that we constantly use, and I want to thank Harvard Business Review for this one, was um, there was a story about in the late 1800s, um, as U.S. cities were urbanizing and were kind of coming into this industrial age, uh, we had a problem in the in the uh, cities, and that was horse manure. So you have more horses coming in for transport, uh, whether it be personal or for supplies, and there's just horse manure piling up everywhere. So it's this hygienic problem. It's an aesthetic problem. And how do we deal with this? Um, and so they brought together what was really the nation's first urban planners to say, what do we do about this? And they brought them all together and they came up with nothing. And there was there was no there was no panacea. There was no ultimate solution to to fix it but then it didn't matter within several years cars were taking over the roadways it's not something we would even think about to this day unless you're talking about you know a, a handsome cab ride uh on a cobblestone street um this is not a problem that we think about and so when we think about for the army when we think about in the future let's say we need to be able to go into you know some some uh, distant land and we have to get there over you know what we call this tooth to tail and we have this long sustainment period and you know one of the things we might think about now is how do we take these you know many ton vehicles and get them across but what if that's not the right question for us what if the right question is should we be using those vehicles at all for this should we be you know approaching this threat in a completely different way um those are the questions that we need to ask, maybe. Not, how are we going to do the same thing we've always been doing in a different way? That's, that's fantastic. That's a really great thing to sort of, I think, for us to end the podcast on in terms of people to take away and think about how they can use some of these techniques and maybe address some of those questions and start thinking about and planning for the future. Look Thank forward you. to talking again in the future. Thanks so much. <laughs>